this evening, um, building on the teachings of working with breath and body and spirit, I'd like to speak about meditation um, and the nature of mind itself more directly. And I think about it in part uh, today because Columbus Day is my father's birthday. Um, And he died several years ago. Um, I spent time with him um, in the days before he died. Um, And he was quite a difficult father in some ways. He was um, very uh, angry, at times violent, unpredictable. Um, um, but I loved him very much, and uh, it was difficult to be with him when he was in the hospital dying. Um, didn't want him to go. Um, and my time spent with him was very good time, although I'd hope somehow to help him die more peacefully. The problem was that he'd spent a great deal of his life um, as a scientist, which he was, and as a, a, a professor at times, um, being frightened and paranoid and angry with people. And so when I tried to teach him meditation in the end, he really couldn't learn it very well. And he would be lying there and great waves of fear and all these stories and imaginings would come. And he didn't know how to work with his own mind. Um, And a few minutes of meditation instruction at the end of a life, 75 years of practicing paranoia, didn't kind of (laughs) overcome that difficulty. Um, And I tried teaching him loving-kindness meditation with his grandchildren, but even that, it was so hard because his mind, in a certain way, was out of control. And in the end, what made the most difference was simply to sit with him and hold his hand and be there as he was frightened and not be so afraid, say, it's all right, it'll be okay, and in some way, attending to him um, and keeping my own sense of meditation allowed his breathing to get softer and his body to ease some. In Buddhist teachings, um, all of the practices of meditation are not taught as a philosophy, um, but they're rather practical. In fact, all of the teachings in Buddhism are intended for a simple purpose, to learn the nature of the mind for the sake of our happiness and freedom of heart not merit or good deeds or special states or some remarkable experience. None of those things are the reason for the teachings of the Dharma, said the Buddha, the teachings of truth or the ways of practice. But the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is the purpose for all the practices and teachings. If we don't know the nature of the mind, the ways of the mind, then we live our life like a boat without a rudder. And all the fears and difficulties and plans and memories can sweep us away again and again. My own teacher's teacher was named Ajahn Man, a very famous master in the forests of Southeast Asia. Wrote a long poem about the purpose of meditation and spiritual life. Um, And it begins in this passage. Exalting myself endlessly, I went around passing judgment on others, grasping the world but accomplishing nothing. Looking at the faults of others embitters the heart. Ours 
is to make sure that the heart looks after itself. When you see the Dharma, the truth, the ways of the mind, you recover from mental unrest. And then the mind will not be attached to good and bad, right and wrong. Just this much truth can end the game of suffering. The first verse of the Dhammapada in the um, kind of sayings of the Buddha begins, mind is the forerunner of all things. With our mind, we create the world. Um, Speak or act with an impure mind or an impure heart, and trouble will follow you as surely as the wheel follows the oxen that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things. With our mind, we create the world. Speak or act with a pure mind or a pure heart, and happiness will follow as closely and surely as your own shadow. So this verse, in a sense, like meditation itself, is an invitation to begin to study or examine our own mind and our own experience, to see what is this mind that we've been given. So let's sit again. You don't have to change your posture very much. We'll just sit for two or three minutes. But in these two or three minutes, allowing your body to be relaxed and your mind alert, simply notice what there is that arises in consciousness, in awareness. Let your eyes close gently. Sometimes a two- or three-minute meditation is more alert than a 40-minute one because you're there for a little bit before we go away. So here we are, just sitting quietly, letting ourselves be restful and awake. And what do you notice? How many people had a lot of thoughts? 
from the majority, it looks like. And my guess is, if you were to look at them, some were stories about the past, some were stories about the future, you know, good or bad stories. Some were stories about the present, someone walking in or leaving or the state of your body or, the, you know, that it's too warm in here or too cold in here or whatever it is. Then there are probably people who had different sensations, tension in their body or pleasure in their body or pain, um, different moods, maybe sadness or excitement or happiness. Did you notice those different things that play just as we sit and pay attention? All through the consciousness or the awareness of mind itself. That was two minutes of meditation. And I think if we collectively took all the stories of that two minutes, we'd have a lot of theater to watch or movies. And that's because the mind contains all possibilities in an unlimited way. And as you sit in meditation, they start to spin themselves out. You also notice that it has no pride. It will tell any story and imagine anything and do anything. So here we are, and in a sense, meditation becomes like a mirror, which thoughts and feelings and sensations and all these things arise, sometimes our own, sometimes stories about someone else. As we get quieter, even the senses of nature and all the possible states of consciousness can arise in deep meditation. But usually there's a central figure in the plot. You know who that is. So it's all these different theater productions, and then there's this imagined figure in the center of them all. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, there are a variety of different myths or stories, and one of the creation myths in one of these 2,000 and more year old texts talks about the birth of beings on this earth um, in a way that really speaks about how we come into an individual life. It says that for eons of time, um, beings are without material form. Um, They're luminous, angelic beings, non-material, almost godlike beings. And then there arises a longing to experience physical form. And thus these beings are born on earth, though still luminous. And then as they look around, they see the soil of the earth, and they begin to eat the soil, and it's delicious. It's a sweet kind of wonderful substance. But as they eat the soil of the earth, the luminosity disappears of these beings. And as their own luminosity disappears, the sun arises and the moon arises and separates the world into day and night. And then as they live further on the earth, eating of the earth, plants appear, the whole plant life of the earth and animals And then their bodies change and openings appear, making them either male or female, as this myth goes. And then they begin to brood over one another, it says. (laughs) You know that process. (laughs) And they begin to stake out territory and separate boundaries and families and kingdoms and tell stories about themselves, me and mine, and create a whole sense of who they are. So this is the myth that's written about it. And the mind does all of this, of course. It's like the Hindu uh, saying of the child who's in the womb that sings the song, let me remember who I am. And then the first song after birth is, oh dear, I'm beginning to forget already. 
as we undertake the path of mindfulness meditation, the depth of paying attention to this life, we can begin to study the laws that govern the body and the heart and the mind and see, as in that myth, how things are created within us. And in Buddhist psychology, um, there are the external senses of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and physical perceptions. And then mind itself is considered a sixth sense. That is, it includes thoughts and feelings and attitudes and intuitions. All of those things are comprising the nature of mind or consciousness. And as we begin to look at our life and study, we can see uh, or use a quite amazing fact that mind can be aware of itself. Without that awareness, we get lost, as my father was as he was dying, um, lost in our stories and our fantasies and our fears to such an extent that we get taken over by them. But it's possible to know the movements and stories and constructs of mind directly, which is a remarkable thing. So let's do a second little meditation tonight. This is also for just a couple of minutes. And in this meditation, when we do it in a moment, the task I would give to you is to sit and count your thoughts for just a couple of minutes, okay? And they might be word thoughts or picture thoughts. If you hear a sound, that's not a thought. That's just recognizing a sound. But then all of a sudden you say, oh, that's someone coughing. I wish they wouldn't cough. That's two thoughts, right? (laughs) Oh, but I caught that thought. I'm really doing well. That's three thoughts, right? Um, now, sometimes the mind will get very tricky and it'll say, there aren't any thoughts in here, are there? Right? Oh, poor. Right? And so forth. It sort of sneaks up from behind. So we're just using the power of this attention to know the nature of mind. Let your eyes close on your mark. Okay, <laughs> And just notice.
two minutes. How many thoughts did you count? Just curious, a few numbers here. Nine, fifteen, fourteen, nineteen. Doesn't mean that actually someone thought more than the other person. <laughs> Simply means someone had long thoughts, maybe, and someone had short thoughts. Now, um, how many of you had picture thoughts without words? That's usually about a third. How many of you had word thoughts without pictures? It's most people generally. How many had both the audio and visual portion together? Right. And then there are other kind of kinesthetic thoughts and so forth. So there they are. They arise and they tell stories of past or future or present and now analyze what's going on, make commentary. And in that simple meditation, you begin to sense that it's possible to be aware of the movements of mind. Now, just as we can be aware of the contents of mind, the stories, noticing pictures, the thoughts, planning, fantasizing, remembering, as we just did, so too we can be aware of the space of mind itself, the space of consciousness itself. That is, we can shift from Uh, focusing on all the different thoughts and images that arise and allow ourselves to rest in awareness um, as a kind of presence or consciousness or mindfulness within which all these other things happen. We rest in awareness, in a stillness, and thoughts come and go. They actually think themselves. Normally we think You know, we're thinking our thoughts. But you don't think your thoughts. Mostly they come, don't they? And the sounds sound themselves, and the breath breathes itself, and the feelings feel themselves, and the mind spins out its stories. It's like a pasta factory I talk about sometimes, you know, with just constantly spewing out pasta um, in different shapes. But basically it's just the same old stuff, thoughts, right? The thought factory. And so from a place of deep listening, we can feel the creativity of life itself. Um, I remember one time I was working on a book that I was writing and staying in the library at, at the theological seminary in San Anselmo writing. And one day somebody came by with one of those leaf blowers. You know how loud they are. And first I was just annoyed, you know. Here I'm in a quiet library and there's the leaf blower outside. And I noticed the annoyance come and go. And just kind of that was my meditation, okay. And then that passed away. Um, but still, it was going on, even though the annoyance was gone. And I thought, well, I'll get back to work. But I couldn't write because I couldn't hear the words. And I realized that I actually had to hear them. I was listening to them and I was writing them down. And only when the leaf blower stopped could I hear the words and then write them. So I went out to dinner a couple weeks after that with a number of friends. I think it was Angelus Arian or Fritjof Kapra or some people who were part of this dinner party, all of whom in this particular table I was sitting at, six or eight people, had written one or more books, and some often in the field of psychology or something related. So I told what had happened to me, and I said, do you all hear your um, sentences, and then you write them down? And one person said, oh, yes, I hear them, and I write them down. And someone else said, no, no, I don't hear them. I feel them. It's like they come up through the earth, from the earth through my body, and there's a kind of knowing, and I write it. And then another man said, no, no, I see it. I get this whole picture, and then I describe it. Um, 
And so people had different ways of coming to what they were writing, but it was also very clear after that conversation that no one was writing their own material. So this, too, is the nature of mind. It, it is more like a, a creative opening into this vastness of life. And we sit and meditate, and there are the repeated thoughts, the top ten tunes, who I am, who betrayed me, who loves me, you know, plans and fears and all that. We can see that. But is that who we really are? And if we don't know it, then those become habits, particular ones that repeat, and they make a sense of our character. Um, And we have all these stories. It's like my daughter's friend who uh, was talking to recently who got some bad grades in her middle school report card. And then she was terribly upset because she was imagining which prep school she was going to go to or high school, and then she was going to go and be on the, you know, the... um, UC Berkeley volleyball team or whatever her particular and now she'd never get into Cal and so forth and she had her whole life was ruined because of something that happened in 8th grade or whatever do you know those kind of stories? you've told them to yourselves right? or I was in the monastery my teacher's monastery Ajahn Chah and prior to that I'd worked on medical teams in Southeast Asia for some years at the Peace Corps Uh, particularly in tropical medicine with malaria and typhoid and leprosy. And so I'd work training people and then working, taking blood and giving medicine and so forth. And I was meditating anyway in the forest sometime a year or so after that. And I began to notice in my meditation, you get all these strange bodily sensations that come at certain times in meditation, that I couldn't feel parts of my body very well, felt a little bit numb. And then I remembered, oh, that's one of the first symptoms of leprosy. And my mind just went crazy, and I thought I was sitting there, and no one will ever know my mother is far away, and she will, will she take me home? And here I was living a life as a leper, you know. Even though there was medicine for it, but I played the whole thing out in this grand kind of, you know... So this is one aspect of the nature of mind that becomes terribly important to understand if we're to live a wise life. So then teachers that I've worked with will say, well, where is the mind? You look and see where things come from. Is it in your head? But take, you know, take your hand or take one hand and feel, you know, pinch your toe. And all of a sudden, hold your toe, pinch it so it hurts a tiny bit. Where's your mind? Ooh, it's in your toe, isn't it, right? You know, and now think of a wonderful meal that you had last week, and all of a sudden your mind is back in this restaurant. Or, you know, think of the moon outside, and your mind goes to the moon. And as you look further and further, it becomes harder to say, where is the mind? I mean, I ring this bell... And your mind is up here with the bell for a moment. And then it stops. And then where's your mind? Oh, where does it go? So you begin to look at the nature of mind itself. My teacher Ajahn Chah's instructions were to sit in a natural way 
in a peaceful or relaxed state, allowing an open space of attention. This is our natural being. And then notice what appears or arises that disturbs our natural rest or our natural peace or our natural connectedness with life. He says, about this mind, in truth, it really isn't anything. It is just a phenomena of nature that within itself, in its true state, is already peaceful. That your mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows the senses and moods and stories. The sense impressions come and trick it into reacting with happiness, suffering, gladness, sorrow, but the mind's true nature is none of these things. This mind of ours is already unmoving, timeless, truly peaceful, just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to grasping these sense impressions, that sight, that sound, this is good, that is bad. If it doesn't follow them, then the mind doesn't flutter. If we know fully the empty nature of these sense impressions, we become happy and at ease. We rest in our true nature. So our practice is to return to this original, beautiful, or peaceful state of mind. We must train the mind to know the sense impressions and stories and not to get lost in them, to be peaceful just where we are. This is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So this is the the initial instruction and the training to rest in this place of openness, knowing the different stories, and rather than reacting to them, being peaceful and allowing a wisdom or compassion then to arise which tells us which to pay attention to, what to really honor, which to follow. So let's do one more meditation, paying attention to the nature of mind. getting a further sense of the space of mind which contains all things yet is not limited by them. The natural state of mind that's timeless, as Ajahn Chah says. So as you sit this time with your eyes closed gently, instead of focusing on the thoughts or the breath or the body, begin to listen to sound. Be aware of the sound of these words. They rise and fall like waves of the ocean. Or of the soft sounds in the room. Or of the sound of these bells. Just listening.
And as you listen, gently, as an experiment, try to imagine or sense or feel in any way you can that your mind is not limited to your head, to the size of your head, but that your mind opens like space to fill this whole room and beyond the vast openness like the sky so that the sounds you hear arise in this vast, clear, open space of mind. No inside, no outside, Spacious awareness like the sky. And sounds. Rise and pass like clouds or bubbles. Rest in this spacious awareness and notice within it also feelings and thoughts. The breath itself moves like a breeze, all rising and passing like clouds or waves of the ocean, leaving no trace. Rest in this spacious awareness and notice within it also feelings and thoughts. The breath itself moves like a breeze, all rising and passing like clouds or waves of the ocean, leaving no trace. The mind in its true state is open, timeless, unmoving, and peaceful, containing all things, yet not limited by them. Rest in this spacious and pure awareness.
and let yourself come back to this room. How was that? Did you have a sense of your mind not being limited to your head? Did that work for some of you? It's that easy in a certain way because the nature of mind is again in your toes, in the moon, in a thought. It can't be located physically, but rather the mind is that consciousness within which knowing arises. Now a further question as we begin to look at the nature of mind and the stories it spins in the place of wisdom, of rest. Did you notice, or can you notice, within this spacious awareness, if the problems, the stories, the difficulties that arise are held with an open heart? Because it's possible for awareness somehow to make its own dry territory. I'll just be aware as if we become detached from the world. And that detachment from the world is not really the practice of respectful attention or mindfulness. Instead, mindfulness contains an element of deep compassion that allows what arises to be felt and known as a part of ourselves and all things. In a certain way, compassion comes naturally when we let go of the small sense of ourself, our stories, our fears. We feel ourselves connected with all things. But easily we get caught in our own inner battles and territory, the inner Yugoslavia, I want this and I hate that and these are no good and that person did that and this I don't like about myself and I want, want to change that. And then if we don't pay attention to that, then we blame it on others and that's what creates wars and the kind of conflict in the world outside. It starts first when we don't have a pure heart, when we haven't opened and paid attention to these things in ourselves. As James Baldwin wrote, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once it is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So if we don't deal with the conflicts in ourselves and difficulties, then we make them for others. Therefore, to pay attention in a deep sense is needed both an awareness and a kind heart, compassion. Otherwise, we immediately fight against or distance or detach from things that are difficult. So here we've begun this examination of how our mind operates, which is the task of meditation in many ways. And out of this brief experience, we can begin to understand the Buddhist path of practice, which has been described over the millennium in a paradoxical way. That's because we're paradoxical beings, basically, um, as both gradual and sudden. 
the gradual path of practice is one of quieting and healing. Because even though thoughts are empty of any great power in a certain way, when we see them clearly, it's just a story or fear or something that arises, and when we see it, it doesn't have power over us. Still, there is a power in the repeated thoughts that come to us. So one of the most interesting medical studies in recent years was done by, I believe it was Dr. Randolph Bird in the 1980s, who was a physician at UC Medical Center in San Francisco. Um, And he took 500 patients who had undergone heart surgery and divided them in a double-blind study. Um, No one knew which group was which. And then he had prayer groups around the country pray for 250 of them, for half of these people, by name and with pictures. And the group that was prayed for, and no one in the hospital knew which was which or that this was happening, had 60% fewer infections, needed less antibiotics, got out of the hospital sooner, and not one of them needed a respirator, whereas 17 of the other group had to be put on a respirator. I don't know. I leave the conclusions to you. But um, you might want to pray. (laughs) You can feel it, that the thought becomes the seed, and out of that, depending, again, a seed of goodness or compassion or of the possibility of respect for ourselves or the earth or others, or of one of uh, judgment or jealousy or fear or contraction, and how those seeds grow. Now, without practicing a certain degree of stillness and healing, we cannot resume our true nature because the habits of mind are strong and we get caught again and again in this small sense of self, what is called the body of fear, all the things we get identified with. So a big part of the gradual path of meditation is simply a willingness to sit and be open to what arises in a gentle way and receive that with compassion. the wounds of our life, the things that ask forgiveness, the uh, ambitions and beautiful things, the excitement and love. And somehow the attention and the compassion honors what's there and allows it to untangle, to quiet, to not be so caught up with who we think we are. It's as if in this gradual way we allow our heart to open and our mind to quiet. And from this, our relation to the world changes. But to do this um, is courageous as well. I know that every time I go on a silent meditation retreat, I am amazed by what my mind will do. And this I can say for many, many other teachers and friends who've done practice at every retreat, it's humbling, it's amazing the stories that it will spin, and the imaginations and the fears. So it takes a great deal of compassion. And it's not enough just to see what's so. Understanding isn't enough. Even enlightenment in that sense of some great vision isn't enough. It's like my wife asked, well, what difference does it make in that person's life? This is from Stephen Levine. 
He says, loving kindness is the effortless expression of the heart reflected in a state of mind. It's the natural state, our connection, when we're not caught in our own small fears. Loving kindness is the effortless expression of the heart reflected in a state of mind. Like any state of mind, from joy to terror, it can be cultivated and encouraged to blossom. Like all states of mind, by their fruits ye shall know them. So in this gradual sense, our sitting or our meditation is the cultivation again and again of ease or peacefulness, of kindness or mercy or forgiveness in ourselves and for others. And in this way, we train ourselves, as I've said in other times, our practice, in a sense, allows us to be with birth and death in a wise way what my father did not have the training to do, to live wisely and to die well, to sit in the face of this mystery of birth and death. And I know being with another friend who was dying of cancer not so long ago, it's an amazing and mysterious thing to be with a human being when they die. And if they've made their peace with death, as this person did, then you discover that death need not be fearful at all. This person had practiced for some time, but more than that, somehow they had a wise heart. And in the end, their death was peaceful and silent. This moment where this person is there and they're alive and then they're gone and there's not a word. It's like a falling star that you see in the sky at night that still. But it's also like a birth, because there's often the whole labor pains of dying, and then something transitions and changes. Now, the Buddha did not give some particular answer to this mystery, or create some image of what one should believe outside of it. The central teachings are how to rest in our heart in the midst of it, in the face of this mystery, to open to it. And what the Buddha found or taught in these teachings is what is called our Buddha nature, our natural state, our true home. And it doesn't take but a moment to remember this. Remember the story that I've told of the two young children the one little boy who had the rare blood disease and was needing a transfusion or he would die. And they looked everywhere. And the only person whose blood matched his own was his eight-year-old sister. So the mother and the doctor and the minister went and asked if he would be willing to give his blood for his sister. Maybe I have it backward. He was six years old and she was eight. If he'd be willing to give his blood to uh, his sister to save her life. And he said, I have to think about it. And took a few days and finally went back to the mother and said, yes, I'll do it. So they went to the clinic and the doctor laid them down in two little cots, one next to another, and took blood from the six-year-old boy, a little bottle of it, and then hung it over and put it into his sister's arm, who was very, very weak. And the color began to come back into her cheeks. 
so that, so that the boy could see what he was doing, the benefit. And then he called the doctor over at one point after that. And this is a true story. And he kind of whispered to the doctor. He said, will I die right away? That was his question. Because he was six years old, and when he was asked for his blood to save his sister's life, he didn't know what that meant. That's why it took him three days to think about it. <laughs> Six-year-olds are really very thoughtful if you haven't been with them recently. So it's an amazing story, and yet it's there in every one of us. It's there in a moment when we look at our children or our parents or the people around us that we're most deeply connected to, or when we quiet our lives for a moment, for a little bit of meditation in the morning, or walk through the woods where we see the light in the trees in the morning, or where we take the time to breathe and hold the news that we see in television and our own sorrows with a compassionate heart. It's there for us, and that's a deep longing to open beyond this limited, small sense of ourself to something great. So in one way it happens gradually, a healing, a calming, a learning of the art of compassion, little by little, moment by moment with the mind. But the other paradoxical way it happens is sudden illumination. In a moment, any moment, we can discover what we sought was here all along. If we pay attention, and I'm not sure where this quote comes from, I think it might be from Chogyam Trumpa. If we pay attention, we experience almost daily flashes of vision, of understanding of the heart, which makes us aware that there is something totally wrong with our ordinary self-preoccupied assumptions. In the face of it all, this flash, this flash is absurdly good news. In a moment, we, we break out of all the stories and fears about ourselves, and there's this mystery of life that we touch again. And it's wonderful. Do you remember Ajahn Jamnian, those of you who've been here when he's come in the spring and June the last few years, and he comes in and he smiles, and his main English word is happy. Happy, happy, he kind of walks in happy when he wakes up, happy when he goes to sleep. I say, well, Ajahn Jamnian, how come you're so happy? He said, because I rest in pure consciousness, in awareness itself, which is timeless. And the world does its dance around me, the sights and sounds and food and, and people come and go. But I don't rest in those things, wanting one or another to change as they will. I rest in that which is timeless. And so I'm always happy. He said, I rest in that true nature that is your true nature as well. If we want to discover freedom of heart or mind, it is here, in a moment. It is not far away. Luminous is this mind, says the Buddhist text, brightly shining, but it is colored or entangled in attachments and fears that visit it. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, to be seen clearly when it is not entangled by the attachments and fears that visit us. What we most deeply seek and long for 
a wholeness, a rest, a true peace, cannot be provided by others. It cannot come from the changing contents of the mind, the thoughts and stories and feelings, or the things around us. For what we seek is our true nature. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, called it resting in the natural mind. Somebody asked him once, one time, are you enlightened? That was, you know... And he said, people ask me about this, my own practice. How do I keep my mind in meditation? There's nothing special. I just let it rest where it always is. They ask, well, then are you enlightened? Do I know? I'm like a tree full of leaves, blossoms, and fruit. Birds come to eat and to nest. Yet the tree does not know itself. It follows its nature. It is as it is. Who are you? Who are you really? Who were you before you were born? When we practice, we can remember or reawaken this one who knows in us, that's known since before we've been born. And this one who knows there is compassion and trust and fearlessness, a natural kindness and ease. And all the difficulties which come to everyone are met by this one who knows as if by a bow. Yes, this too. Mahabua, one of the forest teachers, used to say, for the early years of meditation, it was like there were thieves and brigands who would come in and overrun the village and terrorize it. But then suddenly I found out who they were and where they lived, and I understood their nature. And they no longer come, and now the village is peaceful. And even if they come in, we know them for who they are. They can't make trouble anymore. (laughs) It's that simple. There was an old woman who came to see my teacher. She was very near the end of her life. And she said, do you have anything to teach me? I've practiced for years, you know, in these monasteries. I'm not much longer for this world, so if you have anything to say, say it now. And he said, all right, I'll make it brief for you. He said, listen, there's no one here separate from the rest, just this. No owner, no one to be old, to be young, to be good or bad, weak or strong. Just this, that's all. Various elements of nature playing themselves out, arising and passing from emptiness. No one born and no one to die. Those who speak of death are speaking the language of ignorant children. In the language of the heart, of the Dharma, there's no such thing. When we carry a burden, it's heavy. When there's no one to carry it, there's not a problem in the world. Do not look for good or bad. Do not look for anything at all. Do not try to be anything. There's nothing more to do than this was really the instructions for this old woman of letting go, of not trying to be something in the world, but resting in that place before all of those plans and fears and stories.
So this is a kind of paradox. It's really helpful to look into the nature of the mind, to allow the healing that's necessary to take place, to honor a care and connectedness with all of life, precious as it is. And at the same time, in honoring it, to discover for ourselves that place of happiness or peace that is there, that is the birthright of every human being. It is the place of wisdom where you know no one has to tell you, and a place of great compassion. When we rest in that, we rest in that which was never born and never dies. My teacher called this the natural radiance of the heart. And it's not far away. A moment of attention and we return to it. We're caught up in all these things and struggles and difficulties and hopes and a moment, ah, just a breath, back again. And we get flooded with love and connection and respect for one another and life. The original nature of this heart shines like pure, clear water. It has the sweetest taste. If you sit and let yourself get peaceful, you can taste it. But is this enough if the heart is pure? No, we must not cling even to this purity to go beyond all things we would hold and grasp, beyond self and no self, beyond birth and death. So that when we speak of the Buddha or the Dharma or the Sangha, what is this Buddha? When we see with the eyes of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body or history or image. The Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened never born and never died. This timeless Buddha is our true nature, our home, our abiding place. When we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all things in the world are free for us. They become our teacher, proclaiming the one true nature of life. So let's sit for a moment again. without grasping a single thing, rest in a peaceful heart, in a kind heart that allows for the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of the world to rise and fall as they will. 
rest in this pure knowing. When we forget who we really are and get lost, there's suffering. In a moment we can remember and hold this truth in great compassion. So this evening was some more traditional teachings for you to use to begin to notice the qualities of mind and the nature of your own experience. You can take it and examine it, reflect on it, work with it in the week or the weeks ahead. Notice the storytelling capacity and the likes and dislikes and what it's like to rest in that place before the stories or before the judgments that's open and spacious. So let's do that simple chant, that simple sound, which is the sound of opening of the body and mind and heart, the sound, ah. Um, We'll sing that a little bit and then we'll go. Take some time this week to be still or to walk in nature, to let your mind quiet and your heart soften, and uh, meditate if you can. See you again next week. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.